Hello. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Heart to Heart Podcast. I'm Bria. And I'm Kim. And thank you guys for such a warm reception back uh, last week. That was just so fun. And we're so happy to be back bringing you guys weekly episodes for season two. Yes. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you for all the love that you showed to our launch. Oh, and also something fun we did last episode was we made a bunch of polls, Mm -hmm. um, kind of just related to the material we covered last week about voting and voter suppression lightly and um, that type of topic. And so we we wanted to share out the results Mm -hmm. and just kind of analyze a few of the questions that we put up there. Awesome. So getting started with the first one. Um, And these are all like agree, disagree um, as like the potential answers you could have selected. So the first one is, I think my vote matters, to which 94% of people agreed and 6% of people disagreed. The next one was, I think the burden of voting falls heavily on the Black community, to which 69% of people agreed and 31% of people disagreed. And then the next one is, people who don't vote are lazy or apathetic to which 73% of people disagreed and 27% of people agreed. Then this is an important election to which 98% of people agreed and 2% of people disagreed. And finally, there are critical barriers preventing people from voting to which 99% of people agreed and 1% of people disagreed. So we're going to analyze some of these. Um, I think starting with the first one, I think the burden of voting falls heavily on the black community. So what yeah, are your that thoughts was interesting. on that So I agree with that question um, or that statement rather. I thought it was interesting to see that there was a little contention um, and differing opinions regarding this one. Um, I think obviously I made these questions and they were very all or nothing statements. Mm-hmm. So it kind of forces you to pick a side and what you feel most. Mostly, I feel as though Black people are charged unfairly with this burden to turn up at the polls or turn out at the polls and really show out in terms of the Black vote. And we hear that a lot, especially the Democratic Party, the Black vote, the Black vote, the Black vote. And it kind of feels as though they use us for the Black vote and then we kind of get discarded every four years. But yeah, I mean, I think that there is a tangible statistical thing with the black vote. And I don't think it's fair because Mm -hmm. we're 13% of the population. I agree. I think there's a lot of rhetoric that places that burden on black communities, but I'm also thinking that maybe some of the people who disagreed with this statement felt that it should be more all encompassing to other people of color. So there is definitely uh, burdens and analysis on Latinx communities, Asian American communities, et cetera. So um, mm-hmm. I think maybe if we had have expanded this question to ask, does the burden of voting fall on people of color? Uh, maybe we would have had a higher percent agree. And then the next one I think would, that would be really interesting to analyze um, is people who don't vote are lazy or apathetic. So 73% of people disagreed. Mm-hmm. I would also disagree. I don't, I think also this one, you can make more of an argument for um both sides I think the fact that it's a very just blanket statement um saying almost all people who don't vote are laser apathetic I think that's a very hard case to make Mm -hmm. I think that more so people who don't vote are affected and disenfranchised 
I don't think most people are lazy. Mm-hmm. I think most people are disenfranchised. However, I'm sure there, you know, there's a sect of people who just don't care or don't feel as though, you know, politics affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I understand that idea. I think you could make a case for either, but I think in most cases, people are probably disenfranchised. Yeah, I agree completely. I think you you nailed that one. So I guess now moving on to our question in the focus of today's episode, we are going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, but more specifically answering the question, is the decentralization of power in the Black Lives Matter movement working? And I, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I think this is really important to talk about, especially as we are now kind of transitioning into this period of where does all the momentum of the summer go? Where is all mm-hmm. the momentum from this election? What are we putting this towards? What what are we expecting from the Black Lives Matter movement? And is the strategy and work that we're currently doing effective? Let's get into it. I feel like we've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. Important topic, because in today's day and age, you know, we don't have a Martin Luther King. We have social media. And just kind of analyzing, like, is a hashtag more poignant than like a leader? Is that getting the point across? Is that getting the job done? And, you know, we're in an age, especially where people are very like anti-celebrity anti-ego and everything should be like you know more I guess kind of influenced by socialism or communism and ideas of inequality of power and I definitely understand that but I think not having a single leader that we can point to that can you know liaise with government officials on behalf of us or do things like that I think that kind of hurts us and it it kind of hinders how we get our point across for the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, I mean, I think before we start diving into that, I think giving the history of the civil rights movement, um, it'll serve as a really good point of comparison. So as we largely know, uh, Martin Luther King was one of the big civil rights leaders. There's notoriously a big six, which also includes uh, or included John Lewis, Whitney Young Jr., A. Philip Randolph, uh, James Farmer, and Roy Wilkins. And, you know, there were a myriad of different uh, civil rights organizations like the NAACP, CORE, SNCC, etc. That Mm -hmm. all kind of had a different part of the movement. And as we largely know, and I think this is what precipitated the choice and structure of the Black Lives Matter movement, But essentially, women were kept at the back burner of the civil rights movement. So women like Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, Dorothy Heights, Ella Baker, Septima Clark, um, they were not given the spotlight and a lot of their work went largely unrecognized, even though they were organizers and they put together much of what you've seen in your textbooks and seen on the Internet. And it's sad that even though we don't have this centralized leadership mm-hmm. model um, for the current movement, just the power structure that's transferred, the idea that men are still centered in our current Black Lives Matter movement and women aren't, it shows how things have changed, but also things haven't changed and things are influenced by the past. 
I think what's interesting too, and as I think about it, because the Black Lives Matter movement, I think is, it was intended to be decentralized, which I think inherently kind of give, which inherently gives this um, perception that things are not organized and that we're not really sure where people stand. What I will say though, and like this, what I have been able to learn um, about the civil rights movement is that there was always like a, uh, fight for power even though it seemed very centralized mm. there was a lot of infighting but especially between SNCC and the NAACP and SCLC so like SCLC um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference was like Martin Luther King's organization and it was very like grounded in the church very hierarchical very cons- like mm-hmm. a little bit more conservative um, and SNCC were like no black power you know once it got to that point um, and so I think even though we have this perception that the civil rights movement like had these notorious leaders, there was so much infighting, even within these organizations over like who's going to do what. But I will say symbolically, you could point to a leader. And I think that's something to analyze and something mm-hmm. to think about as we move forward in our discussion and analysis today. I think just the visual of having a leader helps a lot for other outside people. Um, to comprehend our movement. I think that when people today look at the Black Lives Matter movement and they see hashtags and they just see people marching the streets and, you know, community leaders and people on small scales leading things in different cities across the country, I think it's confusing almost that we don't have a centralized leader who could, you know, unify us and speak on behalf of us. And I think in some ways the decentralization has made it so incredibly accessible to everyone, which is great. And I I think that that's, you know, a true cornerstone of the power structure today. But I also feel as though like we've strayed away from having like a leadership, but now we've put the spotlight on victims of, you know, police brutality and things of that nature. So it's like our, the leadership isn't, like the leadership is being dictated by people who are gone and we're fighting for them. Our, our moves are being influenced for their mm-hmm. honor and trying to memorialize them. And we're moving in a way that we're trying to move so that that doesn't happen yeah. again for other people, but we're not moving because a leader said jump and we're not saying mm-hmm. how high, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I also think about how, a lot of rhetoric on the news about like defund the police, you know, people, there's no one, I guess, person to kind of break it down and let people know what that actually means. Mm-hmm. I think it, it exactly it for people to make their own perceptions. But at the same time, um, I think some of the issues that we do have in terms of patriarchy in the black community and this idea that Black women, Black trans people are not given the spotlight. It also makes it hard for us to then call a leader. Because in my eyes, I know what I want my leader to look like. And it's not somebody who resembles Martin Luther King. And I think that is not a point Mm -hmm. of agreement within the Black community, which, again, makes it hard to point to that leader. I just think that it's, it's kind of a hard thing to grapple with. And I think especially seeing the need for the Say Her Name movement there's clearly so much tension um, in us protecting Black women, protecting um, Black trans people. 
and I think that is why the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement wanted that decentralized structure. But again, I think there's a lot of downfalls to it. And I don't really know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I just feel like what's happening now isn't the most effective thing, just because I think there's just been so much room for interpretation in terms of like how people view the Black Lives Matter movement, the policies that people think everyone supports. Um, I think it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And sometimes if you did have a group or a leader that's kind of moving, you know, moving the agenda forward and being very detailed and concise about what it is that we all want, that would be extremely helpful. I agree. I also think some of our, I think some of our Black um, politicians and leaders are starting to enter some of the conversations, but a lot of them are not there yet. A lot of them have a lot more centrist views. So it's definitely not, I would say, fully representative of the Black Lives Matter movement. So even some Black people in power, I would say, are not like the natural leaders for this either. I agree. And also just thinking the Black Lives Matter movement, it's it's so decentralized to the point that we're not all on the same page in terms of policy, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously, like you said, there's some people who are more centrist and some people... Some people are pushing reform while others are crying for things to be abolished, Mm -hmm. you know, and some people have a view of maybe reform this, but abolish that or vice versa. I think that it would benefit us to kind of have a similar model to maybe the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King dynamic, where the radical people or quote unquote radical people were a little separate from centrist people so that the centrist people, like the needle would be pushed forward, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. that, that was, that benefited everyone, you know, mm-hmm. when you have people that everyone could be like, oh, they're radical, but that just pushes the mainstream needle forward in terms of what people are willing to accept. Yeah. And I think that that could be beneficial for us because right now the infighting and the difference of opinions is incredibly valid, but it's not being used in a beneficial way to further the movement or to further our progress. And a great example of that is, you know, if anyone who watches watched the debate, the presidential debate, definitely heard this rhetoric, or honestly, even if you just turn on the news of the radical left and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden representing the radical left, it's extremely problematic to view Kamala and Joe Biden as radical. Mm-hmm. Because that, if, I mean, if their policies are radical, then what are the majority of like the people who want to abolish the police and you know support the green new deal and all those what are they then you know exactly. what i mean and i think i think in that you're right there does need to be that separation because if we're all lumped together we're not going to get anything done no one's no one's going to even want to hear what the centrist uh the comfortable ideas are because they're just going to be lumped in with the idea that everything's just radical and you're pushing for complete socialism and communism and then people get scared But if that was kind of separated in a sense, and obviously people were still under maybe a general branch of Black Lives Matter where they're trying to achieve, you know, Black equality, but it was just kind of you're in one avenue of thought and I'm in another, Mm -hmm. I think that that could help further the goal overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think there needs to be some type of reorganizing. Also, too, I think it makes it hard because a lot of people say Black Lives Matter in solidarity, but don't necessarily see that as subscribing to certain policy measures um, or certain political aims. They just see it as like a rallying cry for support, which like 
isn't inherently wrong. Like, who am I to say what Black Lives Matter is like fully representative of? Like, I can't say that. Um, but I think it does make it confusing because we've seen several businesses, several corporations, several entities, institutions say Black Lives Matter, but like everyone has a very loose understanding of what that is even is supposed to imply. And I think it just, it definitely makes it hard to know where to go forward, where to go from here. Exactly. And I think also if we had leaders or even just a, not one sole person to maybe give all the power, but if we just had a group of people who were at the top and actively maybe speaking on behalf of us and getting and kind of filtering out some of the noise and able to consolidate our thoughts in a clear, concise way and kind of be able to illustrate that to the rest of the world and the rest of the U.S., I think that that would help so much because I think also it's unless you're in these spaces on Twitter and social media, you're not going to understand, you know, someone on the outside looking in doesn't really understand some of the things we might be saying. And it takes a lot for you to jump in and really learn and understand the ideas. Mm -hmm. I think if there was someone or some group able to make it known what we're saying and not just through hashtags, but, you know, people who would go on the news channels that our parents watch and, you know, talk to government officials, I think it would really benefit us. Yeah. And I think as long as we would be able to make that group, number one, a group of people that can be held accountable, and number Mm -hmm. two, a group that represents all the different intersections of the Black community, then I think we're really talking about something great here. I think that could do a lot. But if we only give power to the people in the Black community who have been privileged and uplifted, as you said before, cis men, then we have a problem because we've seen what that's done. And that means that women, Black women's um, just experiences and needs are not going to be elevated as they should. Yeah. If that group existed, you know, you need non-binary people. Mm -hmm. You need LGBT community. You need women. You need, you know, some men. Maybe one. <laughs> Maybe like two. Maybe one or two. <laughs> but um, it would have to be diverse because we're so used to seeing. Because that also relates to like respectability, respectability politics. Uh-huh. We're so used to seeing men in suits, black men in suits, who go to church, like be the leaders. Yeah. When it's like we need a wide breadth of people mm-hmm. to be Different re- represented. Economic statuses. Yes. No classes of over here. No. no classism over here. <laughs> or elitism. Oh, they didn't go to this school. They can't be on the committee. Like the committee. Yeah. And I think that could really appeal to people and get a lot of things done. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the whole base of like what the U.S. is supposed to be. <laughs> like we failed. <laughs> representative of the population and speaking Ooh. on behalf of us to consolidate decisions, yeah. but we see how that's been hijacked. But I think there could be potential for the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. I think also what's stopping that, though, among many things, is the idea of anti-celebrity culture that we're kind of in right Mm -hmm. now. Anti-influencer, anti-celebrity, like, abolish your ego and da-da-da-da. Wait, I have a question. So, if you envision, if there's celebrities that identify with some of the intersectionalities, like we pose in that group, do you think celebrities should like 
if they happen to have a following and be influenced? Do you think they should be considered in that group? Or do you really think you need somebody who's on the low grassroots level who is living, breathing the struggle to be in that group? I don't think celebrities should be a part of it. (laughs) In this idealized fantasy of having some type of centralized power representation group, I don't think... (laughs) I don't think celebrities need to be a part of that. They can be on the, you know, they could be fighting for us and donating their money and redistributing their wealth to to the movement and to help us. But I think that in reality, celebrities' goals, their their goals and like what they may really align with kind of is anti what a lot of the movement is about. Yeah. And even though they understand it and want to fight, but it's like, at some point, you're just, your tax bracket kind of <laughs> counts you out of fighting for this. Yeah. Realistically, you benefit from a Trump more than a Biden. Mm-hmm. You benefit from this more than you would what we're trying to, you know, abolish. So I don't think it really makes sense mm-hmm. for them to be making decisions on this committee. But I think that they could support in other ways. Right. I think it would really have to be grassroots people who are fighting the fight and like really in touch with the community. I agree a hundred percent. And then, I mean, even within that group, I think it's just hu- human nature to want power and to have that power grow up. So even if you have those grassroots people, it, you know, you still have that human nature of certain people wanting to take the helm and, you know, take the lead. So it, it'll never be perfect, but I think if we could start with something that is representative of what we just described, that would be amazing. And then, you know what? If those celebrities want to write some checks, yep, (laughs) I'm all for it. Pass out resources at these protests and pay people's rent. Start other smaller community organizations that can then carry out and implement the vision that this group is putting forth. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of potential issues, I guess, with this committee and you know, how would the money and finances work out, you know, because we obviously would want, people love to donate. We've seen, you know, the GoFundMes of this era and how people, people, the 99% has been redistributing wealth and donating and Mm -hmm. making sure people's rents are paid, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see all of that, all of that type of stuff happening right now. And I know that we'd probably try to centralize that as well. So maybe there'd be like a general fund that anyone could kind of access if you're Black, and you know low income maybe but it's like i could see potential issues with people getting their hands in that pot and funds <laughs> not really going where they need to go yeah. <laughs> and it's like how would we check this mm-hmm. cuz people could have the greatest intentions but when you give someone a crumb of power something happens in it their brain up. It all blows <laughs> up and you know what i think and it's also interesting, too, because it's like as much as we want to fight against um, a lot of the mistakes that we saw in the Civil Rights Movement in terms of the hierarchical structure and even the large centralization of like respectability politics, that is also such a core way that the Black community still functions. Mm-hmm. Like the church and like upper college education, class, black people, college education, like those are key structures and functions of our community so it's like they still somehow have to be looped in not saying they're taking center stage at all but that's still such a core group of people 
that does encompass the Black Lives Matter movement that does still need justice as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. I think it's just going to be a really difficult thing to think about. You know, we just have to try to bring all these needs together and, you know, bring all these people together. Of course, center the most marginalized, the most, you know, all the intersections you stated before. But it's I think we have a long road ahead of us, but an important one. I completely agree. I think I just at this point, I'm looking for someone or a way to centralize Black Lives Matter in a in a way that gives us real true power because we have such a power that I we're beginning to tap into and we have made we've put pressure on people. Mm-hmm. I feel like things are really really changing. We've been able to put pressure on people, but again, then you see in cases like Breonna Taylor where things fall flat. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for some type of structure that will allow us to put the ultimate pressure on these politicians and on the mm-hmm. system to really get change and if we can't do that then maybe it's time to really seriously look at how to change it and tear some parts of it mm-hmm. down something something's got to give something's got to give because it's not working it's clearly not something's working. not working yeah. i think it would help though if we did have people who were actively informed of what we need and able to sit down with some of these officials and really have their foot on their necks. Yeah. Because I mean, I think that would help so much. They did that with LBJ. You know, he was pressuring him. He was meeting with him and that helped because then when LBJ was trying to call up all these protests, he had somebody to go to and be like, all right, all right, what what do I got to do? You know, how do I stop people from- What are your demands? How do I stop all this violence? So that pressure component is huge. And we need somebody who could help us do some of that negotiating or some bodies. Yeah. Some, some group of people. Yeah. Ooh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. And I think, um, yeah, I just really hope that we can all come together and we can all understand the intersectionalities that have to be at the forefront of all this. Because it's going to mean nothing for us to finally get this power and then, like, our movement is patriarchal. <laughs> At that point, like, throw it away. <laughs> that literally just drained me. Just, like, the thought of us getting so far to just, like, elect another cis Black man to, like, some point of leadership to talk on behalf of all of us, I would scream. I would rip my hair out. Oh, man. So... We got to, we have to prevent that and we have to actively acknowledge why that's harmful. And if you're sitting here and you're confused. (laughs) (laughs) There was nowhere to go with that statement. (laughs) If you're confused, the dead silence. Oh my gosh. Oh my god, we said this last time when we were like playing this episode. It just feels like we're living in like Lord of the Flies mm-hmm. right now, and they're in that awkward stage where like no <laughs> one's a leader, and like Peggy broke his glasses, and everyone's just <laughs> oh my god, not Peggy. Everyone's just like losing their minds. Piggy has asthma. <laughs> Did they kill him first? I, I think it was so. Evil. What was that, Simon? Jack. Was that that was Jack. 
I don't even remember. I think it was Jack. Maybe that book was traumatizing. For um, Beelzebub. <laughs> Why are they so based in the Bible? <laughs> they called the thing with the flies Beelzebub. <laughs> Oh my god. It was like that book was actually that was traumatic. traumatizing. That book was traumatic. Uh, mm. Yeah, we could go a lot of ways right now. But I hope that we make smart choices and I hope we can get somewhere where we really have the the power to just change things and apply pressure. I think we have that power now. I just think that we could tap into it even more. I agree. I think we have a lot of, I mean, public support for the Black Lives Matter movement has declined, but I think the coalition that was peaking a couple months ago, I think that was just very, um, very representative of the change that can come and kind of the possibility. And so that really Mm -hmm. excites me. I think despite all the negativity and a lot of the uncertainty about times, I think seeing that, you got to have a little hope. Yeah, I was, I just like a quick thought, I guess, wrapping up. It's going to be very interesting to see how all of these, you know, all the various identities in the, in the Black community, you know, women, non-binary, just all of that, how that's going to come together. Because at the moment, I know a lot of women don't feel safe around a lot of Black men and just like a lot of people don't have the same goals. So it's going to be very interesting how we're all going to get on the same page. I mean, if you look at even like Tori and Meg, they're both people who support Black Lives Matter, but look at how they go about it. The absolute mockery Tori Lanes makes of Black Lives Matter and how he treats Black women. That's not the same goal as Meg Thee Stallion and what she's trying to do for the Black community. And- but it's like, how are these people supposed to coexist under the same branch? I just think I just think some centralization and some splitting offs might be helpful. I don't know. And we touched on this in our colorism series, but it is not like a coincidence that these issues within the Black community divide us the way we do. They actively don't want us to mobilize and come together because they know the potential of of this. So whether it's colorism, whether it's elitism, classism, you know, homophobia mm-hmm. all of these all of that are divisive so that we as a community can't come together and then really have you know this control of power and be united in that could you imagine the like utopian society and movement we would have if we erased all those factors if we erased homophobia in the black community colorism in the black community misogyny misogynoir if we erased all of those things and we're actually all actively fighting for each other's well-being, we'd be unstoppable. unstoppable. Ugh, a lot of work needs to be done, but I, I, it has to start with that analysis first because how are we supposed to present a united front and we have all this infighting and we're not on the same values about humanity? And this all goes back to humanity and treating everyone as an equal human being. Really not that hard. Really not. not that hard. It's not. And I think, you know, privilege exists within the Black community, and that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can be a part of an oppressed group, but privilege exists. Mm-hmm. So get real with it. I think, and I hope that Bree and I have been clear about our privileges through the course of these episodes, 
but we all have to acknowledge that at some point. Yeah. We are not the ultimate. I'm not the ultimate victim. I have privileges in my life where a lot of my circumstances can be a lot worse. So you have to get real with that. Oh, for sure. Even, I feel like I support a lot of, a lot of things that might realistically be hurting my stance in this society, you know, Mm -hmm. supporting, you know, the accessibility of education. And, you know, that's going to, that's going to take away the weight of my Ivy League degree. But do I care is for the greater good, you know, Mm -hmm. just things Mm -hmm. like that. And I feel like a lot of black people don't put those things aside for others because we're so focused on getting a crumb and getting ahead of somebody else. We don't ever think of lifting everyone else up. I just feel like slavery and just the racism and oppression oppression that we face in this country has created such a crabs in a barrel ideology mm-hmm. where we're told that to get ahead we have to put other black people down and there can only be one because yeah. it shows there's always one token black person and we always want to be that one person instead of saying this whole system's wrong i don't even want to be a part of it mm-hmm. and that's a lot of the roots of like respectability politics as well like using class to separate different black people and then demonizing poor black people and great black historians have done this and wrote work about this yep so yep wb du bois talented 10 philadelphia negro and there we if we want to make this work we all have to put aside our self-interest and i don't know if people are capable or ready for that to fully put aside your self-interest because we're taught in capitalism, in the society, it is a doggy doggy world. It's kill or be killed. But it, like, what would it really look like for us to put aside that self-interest? Because, you know, that's the whole thing with Black women versus Black men. Black men have more privilege because they're men. So it's hard for them to go out of their way to uplift Black women. They're not, they're thinking of themselves. And it doesn't discount any type of racism that happens. Like, that's never been something that Black women actively try to do in those conversations. It's just realizing a different sex of your identity and realizing the privilege that that holds. Nobody is saying that, like, you are not a victim of racism in a society. We know. We know. We know. Like, you know? It it trickles to us. I just hope that's not lost. When we talk about your privilege as a man... We are not discounting racism. And also, we understand your just like racism is tied with our womanhood and sexism and, and racism come together for us. There's tropes that are negative for Black men because mm-hmm. you're men, the aggression and that type of thing. And that is determined because of your manhood. And we, we never try to discount that or take that away. We just want you to realize, though, that as men, you operate and have more privilege because we are in a society that prioritizes men and puts men ahead of us. Mm-hmm. That's all we're saying. And it's like, I just want to bash it through people's skulls. <laughs> like, when is that going to click? Is it clicking? Because <laughs> it's not clicking. And these are big questions. These are things that are not going to happen overnight. But we all have an individual role to play. And I think just taking a really good look at your positionality and what you can do, Black or non-Black, we're not going anywhere if we don't address these issues. We had these problems 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. They're still here today. Are we going to deal with them or try to sweep them under, under the rug again? What's that going to do for us? There are old white men sitting around laughing at us. 
sitting around laughing at us because we can't get on the same page yeah we look crazy we're sitting on twitter having debates about stupidity and talking about well maybe meg's lying maybe he didn't really shoot her foot are you guys okay definitely not I love how we started off so calm, and then the threads you know, it, started it's, unraveling. It's very, it's very enraging, though. It is. Especially just, like, seeing it just before your eyes, and people really not being able to connect the dots and see how they have certain privileges. And I just feel like if we could do it, anybody can. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyone can. Like, yeah, and- but it all comes down to people being selfish. Yeah, it does. This society rewards selfish behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think what truly is, people don't want to fully commit to like a new society because yeah. it's scary. I know I'm scared. I'm I'm frightened by the idea of losing our current way of life. I'm I'm frightened. But I know it has to happen. I know we can't keep doing the same old things and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. And this idea of liberation, who knows what it looks like at this point? Who knows? What it, but what I do know is that this, what's happening now, it's not sustainable. No, it's not. I think also having maybe some centralization of leadership would help us plan out a real idea of liberation. Because yeah. I think right now it's so, it is so discombobulated. And people are just like, just use your imagination. It could be whatever you want it to be. And I'm like, I need cold, hard facts. Are we going to have grocery stores? Are we, who's going, like, how are we going to manage crime? Mm-hmm. Who's going to run the post office? And I think having centralized leadership could really help us bridge the gap between what we have right now and what we want and where we want to go. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I think that was beautifully said. And, you know, that planning and that real pragmatic thinking has to start today. You know, we really hope, hopefully this episode just really gave you a lot of insight. I know we threw a lot out there, a lot of things that probably seem very different. It might be very uncomfortable, but this is it is uncomfortable. This is a period of uncomfortability. Like if you don't feel discomfort, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel it right now, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I agree. We're all supposed to be feeling these growing pains right now. And that's kind of the important part because those energize mm-hmm. you. If you felt complacent, then why would you care? (sighs) Before I go on to another 50-minute tangent, I guess we should end it here. (laughs) Thank you all so much. This was a great episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. We're going to have some more polls after this episode because I really want to hear what you guys think. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack. I know it's going to be a lot of sound bites from this episode. (laughs) Most definitely. We'll see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye.